Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to Grace. God is so good, isn't he? He's working in our lives, doing extraordinary things, and there's so many amazing stories of God's work going on at Grace right now. And I'm really excited about today because I think that God has a word for every one of us, something he wants to drive supernaturally home to our hearts. Now, we're in a series called Gut Check Parables, and today's is one of the weirdest parables that Jesus ever told. At first glance, it seems to be glorifying lying and deception and stealing. And so if you're familiar with Christian values, you know that those don't fit. And so we scratch our heads at this parable and go, what does God want us to get from this? Well, we're gonna look at the parable first of all, and then I want us to spend some minutes unpacking what it means because I believe it is certainly one of those highly impactful parables that Jesus taught. So here it is. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. In other words, he wasn't being a good steward. He wasn't being a good manager of the master's stuff. So he called him in and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm, a, I'm ashamed to beg. I, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A oh, thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, why would the master commend this dishonest guy? Usually, uh, the, in Jesus' parables, the, the master represents God. And usually in Jesus' parables, those who behave improperly receive harsh outcomes, like weeping and gnashing of teeth and that kind of thing. And yet here, the master applauds the shrewdness of this guy. Why would he do that? I call this the weirdest parable Jesus ever told because unlike most of his parables, there's no hero in this story. In fact, everybody in this parable is a scoundrel, everybody. The manager's corrupt because he's wasting his master's money. The debtors are corrupt because when the manager calls them in and says, change your bill here, cut it in half or whatever, none of them seems to stop and go, wait a minute, isn't this illegal? 
I mean, what if, what if we get audited here? I mean, aren't you afraid of going to jail over this? No, they just blithely go along and allow the master to be cheated and tricked. But the weirdest part of all, in this parable, even the master is perverse. When he learns of his manager's dishonesty, instead of reprimanding him, he applauds him for being a shrewd wheeler dealer. And again, you read this parable, you kind of scratch your head and go, what am I supposed to get out of this? Well, here's what I'm gonna suggest, that Jesus uses this bad example to teach his disciples some positive and very important lessons. And I'm gonna say the main lesson, what I think to be the main lesson right up front. Here it is, and I hope that you understand how important decisions are in a disciple's life. They really are. I think he's saying the choices we make now, and there's an urgency about this parable, will have a big impact on our future. Decisions determine destiny. Surely we've discovered that in our lives. The choices we make now definitely have repercussions for the future. And I believe the key passage in this parable is the next verse that we've not looked at yet. It's verse nine. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, we're gonna talk about what that means. I think Jesus is challenging us here to make three crucial decisions now that will have a huge and lasting impact on our future. So let, let's go on the journey together and look at what these are. First, I think the Lord would want us to let kingdom value shape the way we manage money. Now, as you're gonna see, this parable says a lot more than just a lesson about money, but, but this is the first part of it. So let's just look at it quickly. What would that look like? Well, if you're a disciple of Jesus today, and that's what our church is all about, we're, we're all into making more and better disciples, introducing people to what a Christ-following Christ life looks like, and then helping them grow in that. I, I would urge you to let Scripture shape the way you manage the money that God entrusts to you. To me, that starts with passages like this, Proverbs chapter three, which says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits, that's an important word, of all your crops. And if you're not a farmer and you don't have crops, this would be whatever kind of living you have, whatever way you make money, that would be the equivalent of the crops. Then your barns or your portfolio or your account will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is an image here of prospering, of flourishing financially, but it begins by putting God first. So we let scripture shape our values by first of all, practicing something that scripture calls a tithe and honoring God with a tithe. That's a consistent teaching 
in Scripture. I believe, and this is what Debbie and I practice, we give a tithe to the church where our lives are planted and where we are being nurtured and where we're growing in our faith. Whatever that is for you, because we have many people listening online where grace is not their church home, I would urge you to do that wherever you're being nurtured and where your life is planted. And you need a body like that. But above and beyond that, God will lead us to possibly give to all kinds of other very worthy causes. You say, well, pastor, where did this start? Well, in the Old Testament, with God's Old Testament people, this principle was taught over and over again. One of the best known passages is Malachi chapter three. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. You say, well, well, that was Old Testament, right? But Jesus abolished all that, didn't he, pastor? You know, it's amazing how many people have heard that or imagined that, but if you read Jesus carefully and what he actually said, far from abolishing it, he actually encouraged this practice. You can read about that in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, but let's look at the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 23, speaking to some religious leaders, he said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You think, man, he's about about to get them for continuing that Old Testament practice of tithing. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now watch this. He says, here's what you ought to have done. This is Jesus now. You should have practiced the latter. What is the latter? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the former. What's the former? Tithing. No, you should have tithed But you need to understand that does not represent your full devotion to God. There are other kingdom values that are even more important than that, but it is not to be neglected. So if you're asking the question, what did Jesus teach about this? There it is. That's what he taught. So I think we should take our cues from Jesus and practice that. But but I wanna be very clear. People go around saying, yeah, a 10th belongs to the Lord. Well, it's not just a tenth, it's everything belongs to the Lord. And our attitude should be this, look, I'm not gonna stress out over that. I'm not gonna get all bent out of shape out of that if I really love the Lord and his kingdom. And if I'm asking him to shape my life, I'm gonna try to steward the whole thing in a wise and kingdom-minded way. And as we do that, God literally begins to shape our character. We literally begin to take incredible delight the more we walk with Christ in practicing generosity because Jesus taught that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus today, we need to pause here and ask ourselves, am I growing in this character trait of generosity? That's the question we ought to be asking. Barry Cameron, 
in his little book called Contagious Generosity, tells a story about one of the wonderful women in the church where he serves. And she was just growing in her faith and wanted to practice generosity. And so she put up some signs for a yard sale, like, you know, people will do these little signs, letting folks know it's coming on a particular Saturday. And she actually took out an ad as well in the paper. And so when the day came for the yard sale, I mean, the cars began to line up and people showed up on her lawn and began to browse through her spacious, you know, garage where all these things were laid out in an orderly way. And in just a few moments, someone came up to her and said, hey, how much is this? There's no price tag on it. And with a big smile, she said, it's free. And the confused shopper was kind of taken aback and asked, free? Said, yes, it's all free. If you need it, take it. It's yours. And people's minds were blown. And they began to call up their friends and family, get over here quick. This is unbelievable. Everything was free. But that woman's generosity absolutely overwhelmed everyone And it earned a right for her to be heard because her generosity was distinctive. Now, I always feel when this topic comes up that I have to add what I'm about to add here because there's so much bad teaching out there. So I want you to know, you cannot buy your way to heaven. Oh, I hope you understand that. But make no mistake, according to Scripture, one of the uh, the unmistakable marks of a healthy disciple is that we grow in generosity. But watch this now. This part is exciting to me. It goes even further. Bible scholars agree about this fact that Jesus is also saying something here that when we become generous people, our generosity is gonna impact others in a profound way so that one day they will welcome us into heaven. That is good news indeed. When we let kingdom values shape the way we use our money, someday some of the people that we've invested in are gonna be a part of the greeting team in heaven as it were. They will welcome us, Jesus' exact words now, we're into eternal dwellings. They will be there to say thank you for giving to the Lord because I'm one of the lives that was changed by your generosity. And friends, I don't know of any better way to use money than to help people get to heaven. I heard this story about a preacher who after a stewardship sermon, someone came up to him and said, pastor, if I don't tithe, am I going to hell? And the pastor quipped, probably not, but someone else will. Probably not, but someone else will. When we give to get the gospel out, we're literally assuring there will be a group of people welcoming us to heaven, basically saying, Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm one of the lives that was changed. So there's a first lesson. Let kingdom values shape the way you manage the money that God entrusts to you. But there's a second one. And man, this one is huge. 
I think Jesus is teaching us here to leverage our relational connections wisely for, for a maximum impact, all right? Let's go back to verse nine again, that verse that, that I believe is sort of the linchpin of this whole teaching. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, is Jesus talking there about buying friends? Boy, the prodigal son bought friends. You remember that story in Luke 15? Man, as long as he had money, he had friends all around. But when his money ran out, his friend group disappeared on him, right? And people who have resources know that, hey, when you are blessing other people, when you are throwing parties, when you're providing things, you know, folks folks wanna be around you. Is that what this is talking about? No, no, no. God's talking here about using the relational influence he gives us. And all of us have some kind of influence, maybe huge, maybe very small, but all of us have an influence on someone to use it to move people closer to the Lord. One of the first books I ever read as a brand new Christian, I was a teenager, when I first picked up a copy of that old classic, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I didn't know a thing about it, but some Christian had recommended it to me. And I didn't know it was a classic. I didn't know it. And I read that and I thought, wow, this is magic. I began to try those practices. And what it basically teaches in a nutshell is that if you make other people feel special by the way you treat them, they will be your friends and you'll have influence in their lives. And can I tell you folks, it works. It really works. But the problem with that strategy is that for most people who practice that, it's based on selfishness. Now go with me here. You are shrewdly using their inherent selfishness of wanting to feel special and important. You're shrewdly using their inherent selfishness to selfishly get something you want in return. And that's the way the world works. It's all based on selfishness. What's in it for me? But real followers of Jesus have a different goal. Do we want to influence people? You bet we do. But our goal, our purpose, our motive is not just to get something selfish, something, you know, materially for ourselves or just to make ourselves emotionally feel better. Our goal is to help people come to Christ for salvation, not just for them to like us. The goal is for them to know Christ or to deepen in Christ. And that goal makes a big difference. I've had a great week this week. I've been most of the week down in Charlotte, North Carolina, around some former colleagues with the Billy Graham team and just leaders that I've known in the past. And it's been a really, really wonderful week in the Lord and Christian fellowship and learning and growing together. And Some of you are so young, you may not know who Billy Graham was, but he was an evangelist that God used to speak to more people, actually, than than any human uh, has ever spoken to about Jesus Christ. 
And one of the things that we were able to do this week, myself and a, and a small group of colleagues got a special tour through the Billy Graham archives. And it was really neat for me because I spent a number of years with the team and we were able to see a lot of the things from Billy Graham's ministry. For instance, it has all of the pulpits that he used. From the very first pulpit in the Canvas Cathedral Crusade in 1949, all the way through to the last one he used in his very last evangelistic meeting. It has the cameras that Russ Busby used to take way over a million pictures of Billy from 1956 on until Russ's death in the early 2000s. And it has all the early films that they did. They did a lot of films to try to spread the gospel. And, and I really enjoyed seeing a handwritten note from Queen Elizabeth. Handwritten note where she actually gushed in this note to Billy Graham about his influence in her life and how deeply she appreciated him. I enjoyed seeing letters from presidents like John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan and others talking about the influence that Mr. Graham had had in their lives. And it's just a mind-blowing experience. But as we walked out that day, I said to some of my former colleagues, you know, isn't it amazing God's grace through one man, one man that has touched all of us in a profound way. And we all agreed, it's truly amazing. But that's an example of using your relational connections, not just for selfish reasons, but to introduce people to Christ and help them get better acquainted. And this gut check parable should cause all of us to ask that question in light of eternity, how am I leveraging the influence that God has given me? See, it doesn't really matter one bit how many people like me. The question is, am I helping lead them to Christ? Am I helping them become deeper in Christ if they already know him? And if I'm not, it's missing the point. So ask yourself the question, should I get involved in that community project? Should I get to know my neighbor? Should I start a Bible study at work and get to know some people and invite some colleagues to come and join me? Well, the answer is absolutely yes, if your motive is to introduce them to Christ or to help them get better acquainted with Christ. And there's an urgency to this. God is asking us to act now because listen, folks, let me just cut it to the bottom line. If there really is a place called hell for those who reject Jesus Christ and they'll be assigned there for eternity and I'm absolutely convinced that's true. Then rationally, our love for other people ought to compel us to use every ounce of influence God gives us to move them toward a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now listen, most of the people here right now, Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, most of them are a part of this church and hundreds of us, it came, hundreds of you came to know Christ because someone cared enough to reach out 
and use whatever influence they had, whether it was just an invitation, whatever it was, and the Holy Spirit used that connection strategically to help draw that person to Jesus Christ. Are we doing that in our lives? But there's one final thing as we go down the home stretch here that I want you to consider. And I think this is something that comes right out of this parable. That is to live every moment with the end in mind. Every moment with the end in mind. Now you may remember if you've been with us these three weeks that we started off this gut check series by using Stephen Covey's exercise where he imagines you being at your own funeral. Remember that? It's a great exercise. I've done numerous times. And his whole goal there is to live with the end in mind. What would you want to be said about you in your eulogy? Well, live in such a way so that people could really say that. Live every day and every moment with the end in mind. I think that's precisely what Jesus is prescribing in this parable. But there's an urgency about it. You see, there's a window of opportunity for that and then it's gone. The window closes quickly. This guy gets a notice one day. He's being held accountable. There's gonna be an audit. He's gotta give an account for his bad management. And so he acts quickly. And if he had hesitated... Even a moment, it would have been too late for him. The timing is urgent. I think Jesus is saying to us today, look, you don't have much time. So you live to be 90, 100. That's a drop in a bucket compared to eternity. Life is short. It's a mist that appears for a little time. You need to live every day with the end in mind. Why? Because now, right now, this present moment is sacred. I hope you catch the urgency of that. I love Paul's statement in Ephesians 5, where he says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I love that little poem. I have only just a minute, just 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it. I must suffer if I lose it, give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. Now, we've called this brief series Gut Check Parables. And as I've shared, God has used each of these parables in my own life in a powerful way. And years ago, I, when grace was first getting started, I felt that God was using this parable to say to Debbie and me, don't play it safe. Take the road less traveled. And for us, I felt that meant start a church that's not just traditional. Be cutting edge. Don't just go through the motions. Don't try to use 1950s methods to reach people today. Get out of the box. Try new things. Innovate because the days are evil. People are perishing. The time is now. Explore whole new ways to reach people for Christ. Keep the gospel the same. It never changes. 
but try new ways. That was the fire that was burning in our bones back then. But you know what? If I can just be candid, sometimes as I'm praying these days, sometimes as I'm seeking God in hours of prayer these days, I sometimes as I'm seeking the Lord's promptings, I wonder, have we grown a little too safe? Too predictable, you know, just go through the motions? Or are we being pioneers for the Lord? In fact, you know what I called the very first sermon on the very first day this church started? Here was the title, it was a question mark. Pioneer or Settler? That was the title of the message. Pioneer or Settler? And that says something about our vision at the time. We wanted to call people on a great adventure with Jesus Christ. And in that first service, sure enough, I quoted Robert Frost's poem. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. That has made all the difference. And I said to that small little crowd gathered in that dingy storefront off of Wolf Road, back on March the 21st, 1993, I said, Jesus Christ, our great pioneer, calls us to be pioneers too. He calls us to boldly go where few have ever gone before. That was my daring challenge to anyone who had the guts to join us in this great adventure with Jesus. And I say to you today, brothers and sisters, may we never lose that fire. May we never lose the desire to boldly go for God wherever he leads us. May we never cease to be pioneers following our great pioneer, Jesus Christ. And I can speak for Debbie and me, that's still our passion. We know that many of you, many of you share that same passion and fire with us. There's nothing more important than knowing Jesus Christ and making him know. Friends, you do not, you do not wanna come to the end of this life and stand before God and realize you had it all backwards. You don't, you don't wanna spend your life climbing a ladder only in the end to realize that it was leaning against the wrong wall. And maybe God has used his word, these gut check parables to challenge you. Maybe he's shown you that, you know, he's really the owner and he's called you to faithfully manage. Maybe God's revealed that the path you're currently on is not gonna get you to the end you really desire. Perhaps God has shown you in his own unique way that maybe the way you're managing his resources is not really honoring him. Whatever God has shown you, whether it's about your relational influence, your time, 
your resources, the way you're living, God wants you to act on that. And whatever you do, live with the end in mind. Think about the legacy you wanna leave behind. Invest now for things that will last for eternity. Father, thank you for your powerful word breathed from your very mind and heart for your people. Lord, I thank you for this series and how you've used your infallible word to speak incredible lessons to our lives. May we be people who are willing to join you on the great adventure. Let us not shrink back with fear or timidity, but with courage that you breathe into us. Let us join you on this great adventure, never wavering, never looking back, never floundering, but continuing to look to you in faith, rejoicing in what you're doing. And Father, I pray that the way we live, there would be a host of people in heaven one day cheering, (laughs) welcoming us home with joy, saying thank you for the way you live. Thank you. Thank you that you lived with the end in mind. Thank you. Because of your influence and the way God used you, God worked through that, and that's why I'm here today. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.